obsessed by a fairy tale. We spend our lives searching for a magic door and a lost kingdom of peace. Eugene O'Neill. Welcome to another episode of Mouthful of Words. I'm your host, Eli Snucks of Little Bird King Audio. I'm an audiobook narrator, voiceover artist, and if the last few episodes haven't made it clear already, a bit of a theater enthusiast. Mouthful of Words is a show all about fantastic literature with a focus on stellar dialogue. It's a show where I share with you some of my favorite works, perform a piece of it, and then talk about them. In today's episode, we delve into the stark realism of the great American playwright and Nobel laureate Eugene O'Neill. More specifically, his posthumously released Pulitzer Prize-winning play, Long Day's Journey Into Night, published in 1956. In this haunting portrayal of O'Neill's own family experiences, this semi-autobiographical play displays a whole array of darker emotions as the characters deal with each other's shortcomings the painful past, and their present suffering. Now, if you haven't heard of this cleverly written string of words and don't mind spoilers for a nearly 80-year-old play, then the following is a quick summary just for you. Long Day's Journey Into Night stars four main characters. The father, James Tyrone. The mother, Mary Cavan Tyrone the eldest son, James Tyrone Jr., referred to as Jamie, and the youngest son, Edmund Tyrone. There is also a minor character, their summer maid, Kathleen. The play takes place in the summer of 1912 at the Tyrone Seaside Cottage in Connecticut. Over the course of a single day, we witness four acts from early morning to midnight. During this time, the characters have many moments of sharp dialogue and self-reflection over the failings of their fellow family members, as it relates to their own personal suffering. There are four points of contention within the Tyrone family, which are paired with each character respectively. The mother Mary's struggle with addiction to morphine, the youngest son Edmund's sickness, later that day diagnosed as consumption, the father James's cheap, miserly nature, and alcoholism, and finally, the oldest son Jamie's licentious, lazy behavior, seen as a corrupt influence on Edmund and, like his father, is also an alcoholic. Long Day's Journey Into Night is a penetrating gaze into the effect of familial memory, hope, suffering, and love. Now, without further ado, we find ourselves called back by the low groan of an opaque foghorn. play is it? Stinking old miser. Well, maybe you're right. Maybe I can't help being. Although all my life, since I had anything, I've thrown money over the bar to buy drinks for everyone in the house, or loaned money to sponges I knew would never pay it back. But of course, 
That was in bar rooms, when I was full of whiskey. I can't feel that way about it when I'm sober in my home. It was at home I first learned the value of a dollar and the fear of the poorhouse. I've never been able to believe in my luck since. I've always feared it would change and everything I had would be taken away. But still, the more property you own, the safer you think you are. That may not be logical, but it's the way I have to feel. Banks fail, and your money's gone, but you think you can keep land beneath your feet. You said you realized what I'd been up against as a boy. The hell you do! How could you? You've had everything. Nurses, schools, college. Though you didn't stay there. You've had food, clothing. Oh, I know you had a fling of hard work with your back and hands. A bit of being homeless and penniless in a foreign land. And I respect you for it. But it was a game of romance and adventure to you. It was play. Yes, particularly the time I tried to commit suicide at Jimmy the Priest's, and almost did. You weren't in your right mind. No son of mine would ever. You were drunk. I was stone-cold sober. That was the trouble. I'd stopped to think too long. Don't start your damned atheist morbidness again. I don't care to listen. I was trying to make plain to you. What do you know the value of a dollar? When I was ten... My father deserted my mother and went back to Ireland to die, which he did soon enough and deserved to, and I hope he's roasting in hell. He mistook rat poison for flour or sugar or something. There was gossip it wasn't by mistake, but that's a lie. No one in my family ever. My bet it wasn't by mistake. More morbidness. Your brother put that in your head. The worst he could suspect is the only truth for him. Never mind. My mother was left, a stranger in a strange land, with four small children, me, and a sister a little older and two younger than me. My two older brothers had moved to other parts. They couldn't help. They were hard put to it to keep themselves alive. There was no damn romance in our poverty. Twice we were evicted from the miserable hovel we called home with my mother's few sticks of furniture thrown out into the street, and my mother and sister crying. I cried too, though I tried hard not to, because I was the man of the family. At ten years old, there was no more school for me. I worked twelve hours a day in a machine shop, learning to make files. A dirty barn of a place, where rain dripped through the roof, where you roasted in summer and there was no stove in winter and your hands got numb with cold, where the only light came through two small, filthy windows, so on gray days, I'd have to sit bent over with my eyes almost touching the files in order to see. You talk of work! And what do you think I got for it? Fifty cents a week. It's the truth. Fifty cents a week. And my poor mother washed in scrub for the Yanks by the day. And my older sister sewed, and my two younger stayed at home to keep the house. We never had clothes enough to wear, nor enough food to eat. Well, I remember one Thanksgiving. Or maybe it was Christmas. 
when some yank in whose house mother had been scrubbing gave her a dollar extra for a present. And on the way home, she spent it all on food. I can remember her hugging and kissing us and saying with tears of joy running down her tired face, Glory be to God for once in our lives. We'll have enough for each of us. A fine, brave, sweet woman. I never was a braver or a finer. Yes, she must have been. Her one fear was she'd get old and sick and have to die in the poorhouse. <laughs> it was in those days I learned to be a miser. A dollar was worth so much then. And once you've learned the lesson, it's hard to unlearn it. You have to look for bargains. If I took this state farm sanatorium for a good bargain, you'll have to forgive me. The doctors did tell me it's a good place. You must believe that, Edmund. And I swear I never meant you to go there, if you didn't want to. You can choose any place you like. Never mind what it costs. Any place I can afford. Any place you like, within reason. Yes, maybe life overdid the lesson for me. I made a dollar worth too much. You've just told me some high spots in your memories. Want to hear mine? They're all connected with the sea. Here's one. When I was on the square head square rigger, bound for Buenos Aires, full moon in the trades, the old hooker driving fourteen knots, I lay on the bowsprit, facing astern, with the water foaming into spume under me, the masts with every sail white in the moonlight towering high above me. I became drunk with the beauty and singing rhythm of it, and for a moment, I lost myself, actually lost my life. I was set free. I dissolved in the sea, became white sails and flying spray, became beauty and rhythm, became moonlight and the ship and the high dim starred sky. I belonged, without past or future, within a peace and unity and a wild joy, within something greater than my own life, or the life of man, to life itself, to God, if you want to put it that way. Then another time, on the American line, when I was lookout on the crow's nest in the dawn watch, a calm sea that time. Only a lazy ground swell and a slow, drowsy roll of the ship. The passengers asleep and none of the crew in sight. No sound of man. Black smoke pouring from the funnels behind and beneath me. Dreaming. Not keeping lookout. Feeling alone. And above. And apart. 
watching the dawn creep like a painted dream over the sky and sea, which slept together. Then the moment of ecstatic freedom came. The peace. The end of the quest. The last harbor. The joy of belonging to a fulfillment beyond men's lousy, pitiful, greedy fears and hopes and dreams. In several other times in my life, when I was swimming far out or lying alone on a beach, I have had the same experience. Became the sun, the hot sand, green seaweed anchored to a rock, swaying in the tide like a saint's vision of beatitude, like the veil of things as they seem drawn back by an unseen hand. For a second you see, and seeing the secret are the secret. For a second there is meaning. Then the hand lets the veil fall, and you are alone, lost in the fog again. And you stumble on toward nowhere for no good reason. <laughs> it was a great mistake, my being born a man. I would have been much more successful as a seagull or a fish. As it is, I will always be a stranger who never feels at home. Who does not really want and is not really wanted, who can never belong, who must always be a little in love with death. Yes, as the makings of a poet in you, all right. But that's morbid craziness about not being wanted and loving death. <laughs> the makings of a poet. No, I'm afraid I'm like the guy who is always panhandling for a smoke. He hasn't even got the makings. He's got only the habit. I couldn't touch what I tried to tell you just now. I just stammered. That's the best I'll ever do. I mean, if I live. Well, it will be faithful to realism, at least. Stammering is the native eloquence of us fog people. <laughs> else is one to expect from the so-called Shakespeare of American literature. The man who, despite all his struggles, and actually because of them, managed to capture what the great 19th century realists were aiming for, and caught themselves. Playwrights like Ibsen, Chekhov, and Strindberg, who I'm sure we will get to in future episodes. But O'Neill did so in an American setting, with American voices, during a time when Broadway was known for cheap thrills, the classics, or settings far and away from home. When O'Neill's first published play, Beyond the Horizon, premiered on Broadway in 1920, it took the theatrical world by storm. 
landing him the first of four Pulitzer Prizes in his life, and finally setting the American stage on the map, paving the way for the next great American playwrights, Tennessee Williams and Arthur Miller. And this was just the beginning for this prolific writer, who eventually was given the Nobel Prize in Literature as well. But how did we get here? Eugene Gladstone O'Neill was born October 16, 1888, at the Barrett House Hotel on Broadway and 43rd Street, New York City, New York. Yes, the man was literally born on Broadway. You'd think the universe was being funny if it weren't for the serious and honestly depressing nature of his plays. However, O'Neill's love of tragedy does stem from his own tragic childhood. His mother, Mary, was addicted to morphine, which she blamed his difficult birth for. And though that may have been what initiated the use of the drug, her deep unhappiness in her marriage and life is what prolonged its stay into addiction. His father was an acclaimed actor, always on the road, a fierce alcoholic, and a miser despite the money he had made. His brother, Jamie, was a drunk as well, and a frequent brothel attendee. When Jamie was seven, his mother Mary accused him of giving his younger brother Edmund measles on purpose, which killed the two-year-old, and the pain of that blame and guilt never left Jamie. Mary swore she'd never have another child, and when Eugene was born, she decided the difficulty of the birth and resulting addiction to morphine was God's punishment for trying to do so. A fierce sense of guilt, regret, and blame seems to have plagued this family. Now, O'Neill himself was no honorable knight either. He was also an alcoholic, left two wives and his respective children with each to rarely see them again until, I presume, adulthood, though it seems he had a tenuous and distant relationship with them at best. Eventually, he was to run away and marry the actress Carlotta Monterey in 1929, who he was with until his death. Their relationship was rocky, having separated several times, though they never got a divorce. But she did organize his life, cared for him, and allowed him to devote himself completely to his writing. And although there is much, much more to this man's life, and the lives of those around him, than what I could write for a feature film, let alone a couple of paragraphs, as you can see, Long Day's Journey Into Night is nearly a paint-by-numbers work of O'Neill's past. Of course, there are artistic flourishes, and the conversations are not only not verbatim, but precisely crafted and woven into the passage of a single day. However, who the characters are is very much true to their inspiration. One notable difference is that O'Neill gave himself his dead brother's name, Edmund, in the play, which, as the documentary I watched on him pointed out, says more about him than the play itself does. Oof. This episode was definitely a bit dreary, but I love O'Neill's works all the same. Now, I actually have at least one more performance and even more to talk about in regard to this play, but I'm afraid I'm going to have to leave that for a part two. His writing is just so good throughout. It was very difficult for me to pick which scenes to do, and if I did all of them, this episode would be way too long. So keep a lookout for the next part, and please check Eugene O'Neill's works out if you haven't before already. I'll put links in the description for you to go forth, read, watch, and enjoy.
This week's episode is brought to you by, well, me again, but more specifically, the audiobook, The Newman Resident by Charles Swift. Yes, yes, guilty, I am the narrator, but more importantly, it's an awesome book. The Newman Resident is a thrilling tale of family and the value of growing up, set in a dystopian near future where our children are being raised by private institutions owned by corporations. Haunting, stirring, and deeply compassionate, in this book, we follow Richard, a father who will do anything for his son, even going up against the powerful Newman home, a school who raises minds for the future, or so they say. So check out The Newman Home by Charles Swift and narrated by me, Eli Snugs, now on Audible. What is it I'm looking for? I know it's something I lost, something I need terribly. I remember when I had it, I was never lonely nor afraid. I can't have lost it forever. I would die if I thought that, because then there would be no hope. Mary Cavan Tyrone. 